Okay, so today we'll continue on with a series on the topic of Reformed worship. And I'll be taking a more historical approach to this class. I'll be talking about the Reformers' perspective of worship. And I know in, in previous classes we discussed a more biblical theology of worship, where we explored a, a biblical basis for how we ought to understand worship, especially now in the New Covenant. And I think it's important that we have a, a foundational understanding that the things that we do in worship should not just be things that we make up as we go, right? But that when we worship, that we do so in an, an informed way. And, and I'm thinking of a passage of scripture, specifically Hebrews 12, verse 28. And I'll go ahead and read that. Listen to the words. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And so we, we, we see the call here in this passage that, that tells us that we are to offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, in our context in today's time, just thinking about uh, the churches that are around us and the churches that we've, uh, we've seen, I think even for those churches who are conscious of the elements of, of worship and, and they seek to be faithful when it comes to worship, they often make liturgical decisions that I think are with the priority of, of, of uh, shaping in a, in a way that fits their particular context. But you notice that a lot of the churches in today's time completely dismiss any historical considerations. In other words, many churches dismiss what the church has done in the past. And the assumption there is that, you know, the, the past is filled with strange uh, practices and they got it all wrong. But now here in the 21st century, we know better. Again, that, that's the assumption. But I would argue that we shouldn't disregard excuse me, that we must not disregard the church's past, okay, that we should be considering it and that we should be paying close attention to how things were developed in, 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 uh, in through, throughout time in order that today's church would be uh, more informed and to better understand why we do the things that we do. Um, and most evangelicals, if you think about it, probably wouldn't reject certain forms of worship like say, public prayer or the preaching of a sermon. These are things that are very common, and, and we wouldn't even think twice if we saw that, uh, that activity happening in a church. If you think about the existence of a pulpit in the front of the sanctuary, that's very common for us. We wouldn't even question it, um, at least here in the Protestant West. Yet these things are assumed, right? We expect them without even thinking or considering why or, or how have we um, inherited these practices um, and, and how they've become so common in our worship services. So again, as we go through the class, my hope is that you'll begin to see that there are certain practices that we've inherited that often aren't questioned um, some that we might want to think about, maybe reconsider their practices that are that we're going to learn about that are not familiar to us, and yet 
are actually very biblical and have always been practiced since the early church. Um, you know, some things that we, we might want to look and consider um, when it comes to uh, faithful, true uh, worshiping of God. So history is important, which is why I want us to consider the Reformers' perspective of worship. You know, what were the forms that were present during their time, and why did the Reformers feel the need to seek Reformation? So I'll begin by stating that, that the Reformation that took place in the 16th century was not merely a, a Reformation of soteriology, right? It, it wasn't just a recovery of the true, of the true gospel, of salvation by faith alone, though it did do that indeed. However, the reformers were just as concerned with recovering true worship that would be acceptable to God. And so, again, the question is, what made the reformers feel that they needed to reform worship services in their time? Was worship that bad in the medieval period? Well, let's start by first considering the context of the reformers and the kind of worship that was going on in the time. And I'll begin by talking about Luther and his uh, reformation of the mass. And then the, then the further reforms of uh, say Zwingli, Calvin, Bootser, um, I'll mention Knox. And, and then finally I'll end with the Puritans. Now in Luther's time, the reformed, uh, excuse me, the Roman Catholic church was, the only church, right? And, and that was what you had, and there were no other options of switching denominations, right? Like, if you didn't like what you were seeing, it, it, it wasn't like you can go across the street and choose another church. Um, again, the, the, the order of worship that the Roman Catholic Church had was, was already something that was established for quite some time. And so that's what you, that's what you got when you visited a church. The Western Church was pretty much standardized, and there initially were two different liturgies. There was the Roman and the Gallican, which was the French. Then during the late 700s, the First Holy Roman Empire, uh, from 771 to 814, he desired that all the churches in his empire worship according to the same liturgy. And so Western Christendom now followed one standard form of worship. Um, Gregory the Great, he was the Pope in 590 through 604, uh, he added certain reforms to that liturgy, but essentially the service went something like this, and I'll, I'll project it up here. Yeah. So you see here, uh, give me a second here. Okay. And so you see here in the liturgy, there was a greeting by the priest, um, there was the Kyrie eleison, which is the Lord have mercy, that was chanted. There was a hymn, the Benedictus Dominius, uh, or the Glory, Gloria in Excelsis. Uh, there was a collect, prayer for the day, Old Testament reading, New Testament reading, so on and so forth. And you can see that projected up here. There were chants, uh, Holy God holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. There was a sermon or a, a homily, um, a litany, 
there was a dismissal at the end. Um, and then there was a, a Eucharistic liturgy, which was a liturgy that was connected to the main service. Uh, you can see here that it began with an offertory, preparation of bread and wine, wine mixed with water, a psalm sung, a litany of the faithful. There was a prayer of consecration, singing of the Sanctus, and so on and so forth. But you get the idea here of uh, of of how the uh, liturgy or the standard liturgy went. Now, a lot of this seems okay, right? Uh, but much of the theology behind it would be the thing that we, especially us as Protestants, would absolutely disagree with. And I would say the big one would probably be their understanding of the Eucharist or, or the communion. And, and there's much to say about the need for the ministry of the word, right? To be central in worship. But, but that wasn't, that wasn't, uh, that, that didn't take precedence in that time and in that, that sort of liturgy. Um, but I'll speak more of that as we go along. Now, when we consider <clears throat> the reforms of Martin Luther, you'll see that there was an, there was an impact on the worship that was actually a direct result of his recovery of the gospel. In other words, Luther and his followers, they preached the gospel of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. And as a result from that, people began to place their religious confidence directly in Christ. And the effects from this, this whole thing, caused, say, the Virgin Mary and the saints to cease to have any place in worship as objects of religious invocation or veneration through icons, that sort of thing. They began to lose value, and immediately worship began to move, I would say, in a different direction, though the, the change, changes were subtle. Now, in 1526, Luther completes and he publishes his own worship book for the use in uh, Lutheran congregations, and in it, you'll find Luther's new liturgy, uh, he creates a new one. Uh, and when Luther creates his own order of worship, worship, which is known as the German Mass, you'll notice that it looks almost exactly like, like the Roman Mass. There's only a few changes. And, and I guess the idea there is that Luther felt that that it wasn't necessary to do away with the Christendom that he inherited and in fact, he found himself as part of that, um, yet with the desire to reform certain aspects of it, especially things that he thought were vital and essential. Uh, the obvious one being um, the the gospel of of grace through faith in Christ. <clears throat> but going back to his his reforming of the mass, I want you to take a look here. I'm going to project it. Again, and this is the German Mass. This is Luther's version of the Mass, where you see some of the, the changes there. And take a look. It begins with a hymn or a psalm. Again, the Kyrie Eleison, the set prayer. <clears throat> uh, scripture reading, chanted from the set passages for the day, Acts to Revelation. You got the hymn. Scripture reading again, Apostles' Creed that was sung. Um, and you, you'll notice that there is congregational involvement 
in this liturgy, which is a big uh, a big difference from the previous one. The uh, you know the Roman Mass <clears throat> often was sort of like a spectator sport where the people who were attending the Mass were probably um, watching the worship service happen more than participating in it in any real way. Um, they would just show up and and um, it was predominantly the priest and the and the and the uh, clergy that was performing the worship service and and they were sort of recipients and again another aspect uh, or another difference was that uh in the in the roman mass uh you, you had um the whole thing done in latin and so as far as edification is concerned if you didn't understand Latin, which most people didn't, um, you, you probably w- weren't profiting much from what was being said or chanted even in the Roman Mass. But again, Luther sort of changes that, and he's doing things in the common language. But going back to this this reforming of the liturgy, we see that Luther wasn't interested in throwing away what the church had received from the past regarding the liturgy. But he did feel the need to reform those particular um, items that you see there. I'm going to list three that I think are the big ones. One of the reforms in the liturgy was that Luther's service, again, was in German. So it wasn't in Latin, which would have been the established language of the church. And again, only some elites would have been able to understand that. And again, Luther's idea behind this was that the service needed to be understood by the people for their edification. <clears throat> now, a second change was Luther's communion liturgy, uh, replacing the medieval Catholic liturgy. And this is what it looked like here. And again, uh, the idea behind Luther changing the Eucharist liturgy was was uh, simple, right? Luther differed in his understanding. Uh, he... he uh, rejected the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. Now, what is that? Uh, well, it's where uh, they believe that the bread and wine changed into the physical body and blood of Christ, which meant that it was a perpetual sacrifice. Um, however, <clears throat> Luther's view, even though it was different from the Roman Catholic view, is still not the Reformed view either. And we'll talk about that later on, but the Lutheran view of the supper is that the body and blood of Christ are truly and substantially present with and under the elements. Meaning that when you eat and drink, you actually eat and drink the true body and blood of Christ. Again, the Reformed would differ on that slightly, and uh, we'll, we'll have an opportunity to talk more about the Lord's Supper in a future class. But again, uh, Luther changed the Eucharist liturgy that the Roman Catholics had, uh, and he created his own version of it. Uh, Moving on to the third point, uh, let's see here. Okay. Ah, here it is. So the third reform in Luther's liturgy was the fact that Luther... Uh, and I think it's very important. Luther exalted preaching to a, a central position in the worship service. 
Now, this is a significant change in the Mass, and one that has borne fruit that is so far-reaching that this is what we're experiencing in our own worship services now. Uh, in the 21st century, uh, where preaching is the, is the I would say, the, the, the center of the worship service. Now, interestingly, on, on other matters such as altars and candles and priestly robes and so on, Luther didn't really care whether they were kept or abolished. And also central to Luther's reformation of worship was the Lutheran hymns. Uh, congregational singing was a big part of Luther's understanding of Christian spirituality. And so Lutherans were marked out by their love of church music and hymn singing. And this is what Luther brought into, into play. Moving along, as the Reformation of Worship continued in Zurich, the reformer Zwingli was leading a Reformation of Worship that was much more obvious, I would say, or more visible with the uh, traditional medieval worship that we saw even, even with the Lutherans. Zwingli's uh, worship services were were very different. Um, <clears throat> again, this he he made an obvious break, and while Luther believed that traditional Catholic, traditional Catholic worship should be kept, you know that traditional style should be kept unless Scripture explicitly demanded a change. So he Luther was okay with with the received forms. But Zwingli viewed things very differently. Zwingli says that nothing should be done in worship unless God actually authorized it in the New Testament. So Zwingli kind of held to an early version of the regulative principle of worship. And so acting on this principle, Zwingli secured the removal uh, in all the churches in Zurich of all the religious pictures he removed statues and crucifixes and candles and, and altars and relics. He, he wiped all that out. Um, it, it's a way of purifying the church from, from these, um, he, what he would consider unnecessary things that were just distractions to pure worship. He also abolished the organ. Okay, He also abolished choirs and priestly robes. Um, and and he, he also introduced the communion service uh, in which the, the lay people would actually receive both bread and wine, in which at the time the Catholic Church had discouraged the Eucharist from being taken by the lay people, um, but preferred that it would be taken by the priest alone. I guess it was, a, it, it was viewed as a very high thing, especially considering the Roman Catholic understanding of the Lord's Supper, where the bread actually becomes the body and the, the wine becomes the actual blood. I guess I can see how the congregation would fear in taking it. And, and again, the priests and, and the, uh, the leaders would probably discourage the lay, the lay people from taking it. But again, you see uh, Zwingli bringing it back and... Uh, uh, making it to where the lay people were receiving the bread and the wine. Another thing about Zwingli's reformation of worship was that he opposed musical instruments, not because he hated music. In fact, commentators say that he 
was skilled in music, but I think his decision to remove it from the worship service was more from a conviction that it was a distraction from real edification that would that it would more likely come from reading and, and, and listening instead of singing. For example, the Psalms were read instead of sung, uh, and, and many of the lyrics and words usually sung in liturgies were simply read in the churches of Zurich. So uh, you, you start to see that there was a real hard break in, in Zurich and in Zwingli's uh, preferences of worship. The most notable distinction in Zwingli's Reformation of worship uh, was his view of the Lord's Supper, in which Luther famously opposed him on this issue. While Luther believed that the body and blood of Christ were truly and substantially present in and under the bread and the wine, Zwingli, on the other hand, viewed the Lord's Supper only as a memorial or, or a kind of pious com commemoration. And these are, in a sense, polar opposite positions, right? What Luther believed and what Zwingli believed. Yet it's interesting that Zwingli's view is probably the most common view in today's churches, right? However, I should mention that Zwingli was virtually alone among the reformers with his view on this topic. And that, that might be surprising to some of us. Um, but Zwingli was was alone in that perspective, in that view of the Lord's Supper, among the reformers. This wasn't the reformed view, right? Mere memorialism. This wasn't the view of Calvin. This wasn't the view of Bootser or Vermeule. And I think Calvin and Bootser and, and Vermeule eventually helped to guide the reformed churches into a much higher doctrine of communion. Um, but uh, there's there's a lot to say there. And, and uh, again, just another plug, we'll be having a class specifically on the Lord's Supper. We'll, we'll learn more about what exactly is the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper. And, and again, I would argue that the Reformed view is the most biblical view in my perspective. Anyway, with that said, here's an example of how Zwingli structured the worship services in Zurich. I'm going to project that here. You can see it's far more of a simple liturgy even though there are some things that he carried over from some of the previous traditions. But let's look at it. It says he had a set prayer. That's how the service began. There were scripture reading, New Testament letters, Gloria in Excelsis, um, scripture reading again from the Gospels. Uh, notice that he had the Apostles' Creed recited by the congregation. Exhortation leading into Holy Communion. The Lord's Prayer was recited by the congregation. There was another set prayer. Words of institution. And then there was a con con uh, consecration and distribution of the bread and wine. A psalm recited by the congregation again. And a set prayer and then the concluding benediction. Now, moving along, we finally come to what I consider the beginnings of the Reformed tradition. Uh, although Zwingli helped to pioneer real change in the dominant worship forms, it was, it was really Bootser and Calvin who gave the worship service its decisive 
shape and, and its distinction as reformed worship. And, and beginning with Calvin, his approach to worship in the two places that he served, right, Strasbourg and uh, Geneva, it was the, the, the worship service was similar in many ways as Zwingli's liturgy, but different in many ways as well. The, the similarities were that was that Calvin also rejected most of the ritual of medieval Catholic worship, including the use of images and candles and priestly robes, etc. However, Bootser and Calvin, I think, moved in a more constructive way in reforming worship, basing it all on scripture, of course, but also on the worship practices of the patristic era. Now, Calvin and Bootser didn't try to recover patristic worship in a naive way, as to say, oh, the, the primitive era is better than now, or, you know, wishing to return to the good old days when things were pure back in the patristic era. That, that, that wasn't really um, his way or their way of, of trying to recover uh, patristic worship. They recognized that reform was necessary even in the patristic forms of worship, but they didn't want to develop a worship service that put a blind eye to the past either. Right? They engaged in a profound dialogue with the early church, and they fostered what I think is a genuine representation of patristic forms, but always using scripture as the ultimate critical norm. Now, Calvin, uh, moving along, Calvin had a positive view of congregational singing. So unlike uh, Zwingli, where uh, things were recited in monotone or they were just read, Calvin saw that it was biblical. Uh, Congregational singing was viewed positively by him. Now, beginning in 1539, Calvin publishes a French songbook that that contains 17 psalms. He also had the Ten Commandments made for singing. And the Apostles' Creed set to music, uh, made for singing. Now, eventually, Calvin, with the help of others, he, he was able to publish in 1560, excuse me, 1562, the Genevan Psalter. And this version contained all, all 150 psalms. And then also the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and also the Lord's Supper, all set to music. And it might be obvious from this that Calvin gave pride of place to the psalms in public worship. And this is important to keep in mind because in the contemporary church today, it's almost unimaginable to be singing the psalms in public worship. I mean, no one's doing it. And yet, this is what the church primarily sang since the beginning. Calvin expresses his his view of psalm singing in the uh, preface of his 1542 Genevan liturgy. I'm going to read that for you. In fact, I'll I'll project it up here as well. Let's see if you can see it. This is what what Calvin says about psalm singing. He says, "Now, what Augustine says is true, namely, that no one can sing anything worthy of God which he has not received from him. Therefore, even after we have carefully searched everywhere, we shall not find better or more appropriate songs to this end than the songs of David inspired by the Holy Spirit. And for this reason, when we sing them 
we are assured that God puts the words in our mouth as if he himself were singing through us to exalt his glory. I think that's a, that's a wonderful quote, and it gives us a lot of perspective of the benefit of singing the Psalms. Now, I should say that Calvin didn't hold to exclusive psalmody, but regardless, for Calvin, the Psalms took precedence over any other form of music sung by the congregation in worship. And, and honestly, I think that we have a lot to learn from Calvin. But as, as we continue on in our series, we'll be teaching on the topic of singing in a future class coming up. Uh, so stay tuned to that. Moving along, since Calvin agreed with Zwingli, and he also agreed with the early church father in strongly opposing the use of instruments in worship, reformed Geneva, they sang the Psalms without instruments or instrumental accompaniment. And, and this eventually became the pattern for all Reformed churches, singing the Psalms without instruments. And, and, and in contrast to the Lutheran churches, um, you see that the Lutherans, um, they retained the organ uh, and the use of instruments. But overall, the French Reformed, uh, they fell in love with the Psalm singing, and so did all the other Reformed churches as the Psalter was then translated into German and Dutch and English. So this was a, a big marker for uh, Reformed churches, their love for singing the Psalms. Now, with that said, I, I want to give you an example of Calvin's liturgy. Um, it, was actually, it was actually Bootser's German service, which Calvin then used in his Strasbourg church. But take a look at it here. I'm going to project it. Okay, you'll notice uh, you'll notice the the first item in the order of worship, which was the scripture sentence. Uh, they would read a passage or a verse of scripture, uh, usually the Psalms. They would open with a set prayer, and notice here uh, there's a confession of sin, and so the church would uh, would have that time to confess their sins before the Lord. And then there was a, a scriptural word of pardon, which, which was a, a time where they would have um, a verse that uh, spoke on forgiveness in response to their confession of sin. And this came from scripture. And then there's uh, the fourth item there, words of absolution. There, the next in the order was the Ten Commandments being sung. Uh, so on and so forth. Moving along, you'll see uh, prayer of illumination, uh, another scripture reading, then the sermon, and then there was offering, and then there were set prayers of intercession, followed by followed by the Lord's prayer. A lot of this was all pre-written, uh, pre-written down, and and uh, set prayers. Then you see the Apostles' Creed or a psalm sung, and then they concluded with the benediction or the ironic blessing. Now, you might notice a difference between the previous liturgies in which held a separate section for the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Now, contrary to Calvin's wishes, the magistrates for Strasbourg only permitted the congregation to celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. Now, this is unfortunate. Because Calvin argued that the supper was an integral part of the normal Sunday worship. 
And he wanted it to be celebrated with great frequency. Uh, he would say at least once a week. And yet Calvin was never able to get his way neither in Strasbourg or Geneva, mostly because of the opposition from the city magistrates on the issue. But nevertheless, Calvin still expressed that the ideal practice was uh, that, that we would do it each Lord's Day. And this may have been due to his view of the Lord's Supper, which, again, Lord willing, we'll, we'll talk about it soon in a future class. Um, but, again, he, he, uh, he had a distinct view in comparison to Luther. Um, but he didn't go uh, to an extreme like uh, Zwingli, where the Lord's Supper was reduced to merely just a, a memory. Uh, he saw more than that in the Lord's Supper. But again, stay tuned. We'll be discussing more of that in a future class. Now, with that said, here's an example of Calvin's Eucharistic liturgy. Um, and I'm going to post uh, put it up here on the screen. Okay, and you'll see <clears throat> he began with the Apostles' Creed sung by the congregation while the minister prepares the bread and the wine. Then there was a prayer of consecration, then the Lord's Prayer, and then the words of institution. And then there was an exhortation to the congregation. Then uh, was the communion. And they did that while a psalm was sung. And then after that, there was a set prayer. Uh, there was the uh, noon dimittis, and they would sing that. And then the last part there was the closing with a benediction. Now, moving along, Calvin and Bootser's liturgy became the model for Reformed worship. And this is where we uh, see uh, worship taking its Reformed form, right? Uh, it was eventually adopted by John Knox for the Presbyterian Church in Scotland with some revisions and this liturgical form became the standard for presbyterian worship until uh, fast forward the westminster assembly and the formation of the westminster directory of worship and this brings me to that final consideration of the reformation of worship the puritan tradition so by the mid 17th century in the English-speaking world, we had the English Puritans, and then we had the Scottish Presbyterians. And they assembled to create standards of doctrine and of worship that would be in contrast to the tradition of Anglicanism in England, and of course the Episcopalians in Scotland. But under the rule of the state church, they felt that they needed to purify the church's worship practices, and, and they sought to create standards of worship that were more biblical. And the result from that was the Westminster Directory of Public Worship. <clears throat> now this directory was to be more of a guide for Puritan Reformed worship rather than a strict rule book with, you know, set prayers and set forms, you know, as was mandated by the, the, by the state churches at the time. The Puritans created standards that were more like ground rules for biblical worship, yet they left a lot of it up to the individual ministers to fill in, specifically the content. Um, but here's an example, and I'm going to put it up on the screen again. 
Here's an example of Puritan Reformed liturgy. <clears throat> and uh, again, hopefully, as you've seen throughout the class, as I've uh, show, shown you the, uh, the different liturgies, that you can see the evolution of them, uh, beginning with the Roman Mass, coming now to the Puritan Reformed liturgy. But if you take a look at it, it begins here with the call to worship. And then second is the prayer of adoration and supplication. Then there was a psalm, then an Old Testament reading, then a psalm, and then a New Testament reading. And then there's the prayer of confession and a general intercession, a sermon. Then the prayer of thanksgiving and a special intercession. Then the Lord's Prayer and then this, a, a psalm, and then they would conclude with a benediction. Now, when the Lord's Supper was observed, here is the order of service for the Lord's Supper, and I'm taking it from the Westminster Directory. And you'll see, I'm projecting it here. They began with a, an offertory, the bread and wine placed on the table. Perhaps a psalm was sung while uh, doing the Lord's Supper. There was an invitation, consecration of bread and wine. They would say the words of institution. There was an exhortation afterward, and then there was a prayer, a communion, another exhortation, a prayer, a psalm, and closing out with a benediction. Now, in many ways, the Westminster Directory stands in line with Calvin's Genevan Liturgy. But you'll notice that there isn't any set prayers. In fact, there's no Apostles' Creed. And these omissions were largely because of the influence of the independent branch of English Puritan yeah, Puritanism, like like people like Thomas Goodwin or John Owen. But many independents uh, objected to the mandated use of any non-scriptural form, such as uh, you know any non-canonical set prayers or or even things like the Apostles or the Nicene Creed. And, you know, for them, they saw it as, a, as an imposition on the free-spirited direction of allowing the conscience to um, play more of a role in that in Christian worship. And some, as extreme as this may sound, some even went as far as opposing the recitation of the Lord's Supper. I'm sorry, excuse me, the recitation of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is something biblical. But I think for a lot of the Puritans who were really trying to push away from a, a liturgical performance rather than a, a, a worship experience that was true and genuine, I think for a lot of a lot of those Puritans, uh, they felt the need to remove anything that felt like uh, some high church performance. Their biggest concern was that the worship service be filled with elements of worship that brought about real edification. And again, many of these things sound extreme, but but they reveal that many of these Puritans, uh, the way that they would make their decisions were often reactionary against the practices of high church Anglicanism that existed at the time. And who can blame them, especially when it was the it was them who were persecuting the the Puritans. And so you can sort of understand how that 
plays a role in wanting to remove every hint of high church liturgy um, and, and why, why they made the, the, the decisions that they made. But <clears throat> overall, Puritanism, like the rest of the Reformed tradition, was not monolithic in its approach to worship. So while some kept previous practices and some of them removed them, you'll notice that there was, there was a common goal Right? The goal was the same across the board in Reformed worship, which was to seek to, to worship God in spirit and in truth, and to allow the scriptures to be the rule that determines its legitimacy. And so who can argue with that, right? <clears throat> now, I just want to give some concluding remarks as we close out. We learn a few things from the development of Reformed worship. First of all, we see, again, that the goal from the beginning was to conform the worship service to more of scriptural obedience. Again, beginning with the Lutheran tradition, we get the recovery of the gospel, <laughs> and that's very important, and uh, the importance of congregational participation in that worship. So we get that from Luther's reform. In the Zwingli Reformation of Worship, we get the removal of images and the props that aren't essential and often are a distraction to pure worship of God. In Bootser and Calvin, we get a worship service that is biblical while still having continuity with the church of the past and, and one that considers the worship of the early church and has a right theology of the Lord's Supper. And finally, in the Puritans, we gain a, a very word-centered order of worship that is reverent and consciously prayerful and I think, reliant on the Holy Spirit. Yet, they are consistent with the Reformed principles, and perhaps I would say they were unrivaled in the area of preaching. If you think about it, the, the Puritan preaching remains one of the greatest glories of the history of the church. Being saturated with scripture and an application that searches deep into the human heart. And so there's a lot to be thankful for, for each of the steps in the in the uh, progression of reformed worship. Now, as we've considered the the uh, reformers' perspective on worship, we're left with the question, right? And, and I think the question is, how then do we worship? And I think the answer is that we ought to seek to be faithful to God's word, um, just as they were. We need to approach worship with humility recognizing that we're, we're dealing with a holy God and that worshiping him is the most important duty that we will ever engage in. And therefore, the topic of worship must be thought through with a level of seriousness and with patience. I think it requires maturity in order to lead a church in further reformation of worship. And I would say that ambition of having your dream church will not do it. I think it requires prayer and it, and it requires uh, the preservation of unity along the way. And so let us continue to seek the scriptures and allow it to shape our understanding of worship so that we, in one accord, can move together in unity toward a true and faithful worship of God. Now, next week... We'll continue with part two, and, and I'll be discussing the more practical things, maybe the practical principles 
of Reformed worship. And, and I think the class will be interesting. We'll be dealing with the topic of the regulative principle of worship and questions pertaining to the essential elements of worship and circumstances. So don't miss it. Well, with that said, um, let me go ahead and conclude with, with prayer. Well, our Father, we, we thank you for allowing us to explore the, the history of Reformation uh, of worship. And we, we pray that we would learn from the past and be continuously renewed in our minds, especially in this topic, so that we would offer you acceptable worship. And so, Father, help us to be faithful in this area. And may your spirit do this work, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.